गुड मॉर्निंग इट्स ट्यूजडे द ट्वेंटी सेवेंथ ऑफ जून एंड आई एम गोविंद राज एथिराज कमिंग टू यू फ्रॉम मुंबई इंडियाज फाइनेंशियल कैपिटल आर टॉप रिपोर्ट फॉर द डे वाई आर इंडियन आई टी कंपनीज नॉट वेंचरिंग इन टू सेमी कंडक्टर्स इवन एज फॉक्सकॉन हैज सेकेंड थॉट्स अबाउट इट्स पार्टनर बाईजूज मेक्स अनादर पिच बट फ्लीइंग डायरेक्टर्स इज नॉट अ गुड साइन हाउ नैनो एंटरप्राइजेज वन बैक बोन ऑफ द कंट्रीज इकोनमी ग्रो वेन दे गेट क्रेडिट and the rains are here some numbers on where exactly we are deficient and what's lost by divisions this is a core report with govindraj athiraj semiconductor blues who should set it up the vedanta group run by anil agarwal calls itself a global natural resources conglomerate operating in india and africa in industries ranging from oil and gas to a range of metals from zinc to aluminium to iron ore and nickel vedanta and foxconn from taiwan signed a mou or a memorandum of understanding in september 22 with the gujarat government to invest about 154000 crores in all to set up the country's first semiconductor manufacturing facility it was also touted as independent india's biggest ever corporate investment so far that project going by reports seems to be unraveling more so since the government asked the duo to come back with a fresh proposal for a different node of semiconductor and i'll explain that in a moment The duo had applied for a 28 nanometer fabrication plant while the government now feels we should focus on 40 nanometer which has more widespread application in devices and the like as opposed to the 28 nanometer which could be used for high end phones and so on. The Economic Times is now reporting that Foxconn has begun reaching out to large business houses as it seeks to partner with them to further its semiconductor ambitions in India. the et quotes sources saying that there are differences between the two partners and the government has apparently suggested that foxconn scout for other partners which it is doing one concern with the vedanta group is its relative financial stability or more specifically its debt position vedanta's agarwal told media persons in april that they were actually comfortable and not once in 25 years had they defaulted vedanta has also repaid around a billion dollars of debt at that time and also said then that its gross debt was 6.8 billion dollars at the end of march 2023 as compared to 9.7 billion dollars in march 22 foxconn is apparently now talking to others be that as it may i've wondered from the start why other companies or types of companies have not thrown their hat into the semiconductor ring the reasons for not getting an r obviously very large capital expenditure policy and incentive dependent though incentives can go up to 70% risky business inherently because semiconductor capacity is going up elsewhere in the world and being driven by the likes of giants like intel and tsmc at scales not seen before very high precision manufacturing and thus prone to technical challenges or more technical challenges problems and of course things going wrong there could be other reasons too But I have wondered why is it that a Vedanta would be the only serious large business house or company to pitch? At least that's openly known at this time. The obvious reason for this, as has always been the case, is that new investment areas like this, demanding scale execution, usually draw the bigger risk takers with the balance sheet confidence to pull it off. The industry itself is not so relevant, as a group like Reliance has demonstrated as they foray into new industries, or for that matter, Adani. But if I were to look west, 
The companies that are expanding in hardware are traditional chip manufacturing companies like Intel or TSMC. So it is a core competence issue. Though the chips for companies like NVIDIA, AMD and Apple are made by TSMC, who by the way is not coming to India from what I can see, nor is Intel, which last week announced a $25 billion chip plant in Israel, a move which has surprised many, including perhaps in Israel itself. Now, the other companies who are entering the broader hardware space in the West are Facebook, Google, and Apple, among others. And these, as you know, are either social platforms or hardware companies in as much as they make phones and earpods and so on. So it is no secret that chip making is something most people are wary of, even if the returns are high and, as is the case here, the incentives higher. Parking that thought for a moment, why, I wonder, would India's software majors like Wipro, TCS, HCL and Infosys not think of chip manufacture? Through partnerships, of course, with a Foxconn or others who could come to India. Wipro and HCL, by the way, used to manufacture computers once upon a time and are still involved in some form of manufacturing, at least Wipro is. TCS is not, but it has many sister companies who are in manufacturing, from cars to even batteries, as you know. Infosys is the only company that does not have the hardware background, but it surely has the balance sheet strength if it wanted to. The fear, of course, could be that if I am a software services company and valued as such, why would I stick my neck into something that could blow up and cause my share price to tank, maybe in the reverse order? The fear and apprehension part is understandable. But it is interesting that none of these companies, for whom it is a more logical expansion than, say, a zinc, aluminum and power company, are willing to take a plunge, even if small. So the larger point is really this. India has a hardware ecosystem. Making chips is a very high-precision task, and which is why there are literally a handful of companies doing it all over the world, and no one else dare ventures in. But India has taken a call that it is in our strategic interest to manufacture semiconductor chips because, as India's semiconductor mission advisor and HCL co-founder Ajay Choudhury told me a few weeks ago, wars will be fought over semiconductors. He also believes quite strongly that we should go in for the more mature 40 nanometer size chips. So to conclude, quite likely semiconductor manufacture is a very precarious and tricky business, literally and figuratively, but it does merit asking, why is a product or business that is so critical and backed with such massive incentives from the government still being so studiously avoided at this point? Elsewhere, while semiconductors are still to get off the ground, more malls are coming up. The UAE-based Lulu Group has said it is working on various Indian projects and will invest 10,000 crore rupees in the country over the next three years. The conglomerate has invested some 20,000 crore rupees in India till now, Lulu chairman Yusuf Ali M.A. said on Monday, according to the Mint newspaper. Lulu has begun construction on a shopping mall in Ahmedabad. Another one is coming up in Chennai. And the group is also in the process of setting up a food processing plant in Noida and Telangana. IT companies are busy. One reason why IT companies are not investing anywhere else, including all the brave diversifications like semiconductors and apart from all the other logical reasons, might be that business is still strong. At least for the big ones, despite the slowdown in US and Europe and a tighter rest of the year forecasted. Infosys has bagged a digital transformation deal with Nordic-based Dansk Bank valued at $454 million for a period of five years. Significantly, Infosys will also acquire 
the company's IT center in Bangalore that employs 1,400 people. Now, this has some strategic significance since usually companies set up captive centers to manage and control operations directly. And the selling of it and the handing over suggests that they are revisiting that model. Now, this has happened in previous years as well and there were some big deals too. Infosys also got a $1.5 billion deal from energy major BP, earlier British Petroleum, for five years, also the largest it has won in the last three years. The MOU was signed on May 16th, which is last month, and involves the modernization of end-to-end application services to enhance operational efficiencies and business resilience, the company said. Back to last week, TCS said it had got a $1.9 billion deal from UK Workplace Pension Scheme, NEST, to digitally transform its scheme administration services. Nest and TCS have worked together for around 12 years. Why would investors and directors leave a company? EdTech company Baiju's has called for a shareholder meeting this Saturday to ostensibly clear all doubts. The call comes on the heels of three directors and the auditor of the company, Deloitte, resigning from their positions. Reports say Baiju Ravindran, the founder, has pointed out that his own investments are at stake and insisted that the company's valuation was still intact at $22 billion. He also apparently acknowledged his past mistakes and assured shareholders that his learnings far outweigh any missteps. He apparently highlighted his personal investments in the company, including $400 million in the parent, $250 million for learning company Akash, and an additional $250 million through pledged secondary shares for the last funding round. Importantly, he said that the company would close its year-before-last-year results, which is 21-22, by the end of September 23, and the 22-23 results by the end of December this year. Apparently, the audit for most subsidiaries for 21-22 has been completed. Now, this, of course, is the warning sign that the company is still auditing subsidiary results and trying, evidently, to reconcile them. Even multinationals, Indian or overseas, with subsidiaries all over the world with completely different accounting standards don't dare use this excuse anymore. Or not at least without inviting considerable shareholder ire. And for a tech company, obviously, it's more surprising. Which brings me back to the resignations. I don't really track how many startups are imploding and the reasons for them. But one thing is in common. In all cases, the investors are taking control and effecting management change. In this case, surprise, surprise, the investors as represented by their directors seem to be running for the door. Which begs the question, why? As a backdrop, Baiju and family own anywhere between 20 and 25% of the company from what I could gather. But the precise number is not so important for now. What is important is that the funds own close to 65% while other entities hold another 10%. So the majority is clearly owned by investors and they had three representatives on the board, all of whom have now expressly resigned and reaffirmed that status, going by reports. So, back to the same question. Which investor or investor representative quits and runs, and that too after collectively investing close to $6 billion? Is it because of an enforcement directorate investigation into Baiju's books, including raids in the last week of April 2023? The ED apparently was looking at some 9,754 crores, sent to various foreign jurisdictions between 2011 and 23, of some 28,000 crore rupees it received in the same period, according to reports. The money could of course have gone out for many very valid reasons, but we do not know till the investigation is completed when it's completed. 
So either the directors feel that inquiry is sufficient reason for them to get out or they feel that there is more than meets the eye which the ED knows and they also know or suspect. Or it could be an altogether different reason but similar in character. Else, they would not get out however frustrated or unhappy they might be with the people running the company. Either way, without key directors and an auditor, the company is clearly in no man's land or like a boat afloat with of course $6 billion down. Nano Enterprises on MSME Day After talking about billions of dollars potentially going down the drain, maybe it's time to talk about the relatively unrepresented and hard-working few who can make a few lakhs of rupees go a long way, helping themselves, their families, communities and the country at large. Better still, if these nano enterprises, defined as small businesses like retail or kirana shops, micro-wholesalers and even street vendors with an annual turnover of between 10 lakh rupees and a crore rupees, get loans, they are able to grow their businesses. So the more credit they get, the more they will grow their businesses, according to a study by Chennai-based IFMR Kriya. These nano-entrepreneurs sit under the larger definition of MSME or micro-small and medium enterprises in India, who contribute to roughly 30% of India's GDP according to some estimates. Speaking of which, today, the 27th of June, is MSME Day. Importantly, the majority of nano-entrepreneurs in India are women and between the ages of 20 and 50 and mostly educated up to the 12th standard. The sample is small but apparently pretty well represented and the authors are confident that the potential for credit-led growth, trickle-down growth and thus economic expansion in this sector or this space is pretty high. To get a better sense, I spoke to the author of this study, Sharon Bocio, Executive Director at LEED at IFMR University. So first of all, this is actually quite an interesting study we've done with Dell Foundation. The key was understanding the impact of finance in the related aspects of these nano-entrepreneurs. So nano-entrepreneurs are interesting terms. Uh, they're part of the MSME sort of like overall spectrum, but nano-entrepreneurs form the bulk of what we call like uh, micro-enterprises. Most of them are typically your small kirana shops, small retail shops, small wholesalers. It could even be street vendors. Basically, a lot of people in your neighborhood, uh, they're hyper-local. And they have a very important function in the economy. Often also, they could be part of like wider supply chain. Most of them are under one crore. Often they are related to a family business headed by uh, the male or the female who helps a lot, the wife or the husband and the families involved. A lot of the characteristics of them is there are people who are not very well educated but we're able to try to find a ways for gainful livelihoods. And a lot of them um, are very important in tier two, two cities, for example, which form the bulk of how people earn their livelihoods in those domains. It does, to some extent. Now, you're also saying that when we lend to them and we give them more working capital and uh, loans, this helps them grow apart from just sustaining themselves because the growth is an important aspect. Is that borne out through the data that you've looked at? Yeah. So when we see the evolution, this sector actually is very heterogeneous. When you talk about even within the micro, the nano entrepreneurs, uh, they can go from anywhere from three lakhs to over one crore. So you can imagine the spectrum of that. There's a bulk at the like smaller tail end of this. And uh, what you see is that most of the people usually start on small funding they receive from friends and families. But as they grow bigger, they need more money for inventory or other. And as they understand their markets, they're keen to develop because when you see how they are, they're very hyper-local and understand immediately the demands. 
they're also able to, some of them who are more savvy oriented and more entrepreneurial, uh, they're able to understand how to fit into bigger supply chains. Uh, for that, they do need to have access to quick finance and affordable finance. When you see some of the alternatives to them, a lot of them uh, usually could be local pawnbrokers, moneylenders, could be various forms of uh, chit funds registered or unregistered that usually they go to to grow. But I think the best form of them is to try to get formal access to finance, either through uh, NBFCs, uh, these emerging fintechs who are so form of NBFCs, also informal banks who offer more favorable terms and able to get bigger loans at a better price. And as you see, like uh, for them to grow, obviously not every industry is prone to grow. Uh, if you have a Kirana store, you might want to open a few in local neighborhoods. If you are more in sort of like some type of manufacturing supply chain, you might have the ability to expand even more if you have the appetite, the understanding and the knowledge. So one key on this is identifying who can grow, what can grow, but as well identify, you know, how can you assess their credit worthiness, which is one of the big problems of understanding how to bring lending into this domain. There's a lot of innovation that's bringing. Digital has been one of them. Uh, to be able to reach out and understand digital trails as well, how people, you know, what is their transactions, how big is uh, their business, what other forms that you can assess them if they don't have asset or, or other forms of collaterals. Often these firms have something called very thin files. So they're not your usual like banks where you can understand, okay, I have these assets, etc. The challenge of lending is that, however, uh, there's a huge um, opportunity there because a lot of these non-enterprises are actually credit worthy. Most of them, the repayment rates are quite favorable, whether you look at Equifax or other forms of, of uh, credit rating. I think what happens is that we need to look at them through a different lens and understand the potential for growth given their specific characteristics. And you're saying that uh, NBFCs are mostly lending to them today? A lot of them, the bulk of NDSCs, there's also banks also that try to form specific units, uh, MSME hubs and things like that. But to reach out to these segments or to the cities, you need to have almost a lot of agents on the ground, a lot of ability to understand the market. NDC seems to be more agile to doing that. Uh, even the recent fintechs who've been successful in, in understanding that market, they sort of like have these FITO digital models where, you know, they enable people digitally, but they also have feet on the ground able to understand and tap into these markets. And you're saying also that, I mean, implicitly that the cost of acquisition of clients or the cost of servicing these nano entrepreneurs is somewhere absorbed thanks to the digital physical model. So it could, it, it enables, I, I think the huge cost is trying to assess the credit worthiness of this and serving these clients. So that would help a lot um, as well. Although our, our study has focused on different channels, we looked at the uh, and different partners, whether it's digital, uh, on the ground, NBFCs, etc. And would this be like a pan-India study or was it? did you focus on parts of India? Well, we tried to make it pan-India as possible. So it's randomly selected from a portfolio of seven partners uh, that work with the MSDF. So by and large, I won't say it's a representative sample as if you would do like a, a survey with the government. But I would say that it has a lot of indications that it talks a lot in depth about some of the trends in uh, nano enterprises. We did compare with other data being collected. One thing about this particular segment is there's no real uh, non-digital survey that's done uh, to adequately understand. So you have these annual surveys of industries that look at the bigger formal ones, and you have NSSO data, for example, that looks at forms of 
self-employment and nine enterprise. So you have to often have to collect different data sets together to understand this segment. Right. And last question. So I'm assuming that this segment is financially included, as in they obviously have bank accounts and have had them for some time. They're transacting uh, using those bank accounts, not just for loans and so on, but also for, uh, you know, commercial transactions. So financial is an interesting word because you can be included, but not super integrated. Uh, I'm actually studying that phenomenon. What is the spectrum of being included? So you can be included if you have a bank account, if that's the definition. You can be included if you have savings and if you have a loan. Um, now we are starting to looking at financial well-being. So once you're in the system, and I think India by large, that's been one of their success stories to open bank accounts. Even the gender gaps in terms of bank account by men and women has closed in India. So that's a fantastic news. But I would say they are somewhat financially included but they're not optimizing their financial well-being within the finance system. There's much more that can be done in the segment uh, to make sure that, uh, you know, they're fully formalized, for example, or they're fully utilizing concepts like now a lot of firms are starting like micro equity, for example. A lot of people want to invest in these small companies. You know, they don't know how well they're still be able to integrate it in that form. Right. Uh, Shan, we run out of time. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks a lot. And our rain check. I have seen over the years that many people in the stock markets follow monsoons closely. Part of the reason is the obvious one. There is either a sentiment or material impact of monsoons or the lack of them on the markets in anticipation of a positive or negative impact on companies and the economy. Part of it also, I believe, is that once the data starts coming in, it becomes an interesting statistical exercise in itself, something that intellectually challenges many. But of course, the impact or significance, as I pointed out, is real. So, the latest numbers on the monsoons as per Bank of Baroda research are as follows. Monsoons, by the way, have now reached 80% of the country, according to the Indian Meteorological Department, and have unusually hit both Mumbai and Delhi at the same time, for the first time since 1961. Now, back to BOB research, the delayed monsoon this year has meant that rainfall distribution has been uneven. As of 25th June, there was large excess to excess to normal rains in 13 divisions of India and deficient to large deficient in 23 divisions. The deficient divisions cover Maharashtra, Karnataka, Telangana, Andhra Pradesh, Odisha, West Bengal, Madhya Pradesh, Chhattisgarh, Bihar, Jharkhand, among others. So, 23 of 36 divisions, which is 63% of the MET divisions, are in deficient or large deficient territory. Now, this is 61% of the total land mass. Presently, India's interiors are in the deficient zone as far as rainfall is concerned and have limited access to irrigation facilities, according to BOB research. Delayed monsoon can also affect cropping patterns in the country and the total area under cultivation at this point is lower than last year by 4.5%. There are far more details available if you go crop-wise like rice, which requires more water at this stage, as well as cotton and oil seeds. But now the rains have begun and we will, in coming days, focus more on the impact rather than the details that I just mentioned. Meanwhile, prices of tomatoes have crossed 100 rupees per kg according to various media reports. Too late, of course, to tell you to do anything about it, but this is in case you feel it could go higher. That's it for me for today. Have a great day ahead and see you tomorrow. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. 
you can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.